We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Arsenal finally get to play a game on Saturday and won, which means we got to wait until Sunday to have our league hopes dashed. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. We got to play on a Saturday. We got to win on a Saturday. We got to look at the table on a Saturday, which means we had almost an entire day before looking at the table on a Sunday and realizing, yikes. Yeah, um... Could have used Manchester City to win at the weekend and lose at midweek and not the other way around, which I hope will not be the case. Um... Certainly could have used Chelsea not to destroy Everton. Ultimately, as it stands right now, the league table may be looking a little bleak. We can maybe go into that in a little bit. And also just touch on the quality of the league in general. I am starting to suspect that maybe football is just bad now. Um, We'll talk about that. Uh, Hey, there's a chance the league might get called off, though, before any of these positions are final. So we'll we'll see what happens there. Paul's on on Twitter, but he's not here, so I'm not going to introduce him. Clive's on Twitter. Clive BAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Tim's on Twitter. Just a little hello, Tim. Hello there. I just want to uh, really quickly remind everyone that we do have a Patreon. I'm sure you've never heard of it, so I should mention it. Um, if you have never heard of it, uh, you can go there and sign up, and we would love to have you. It's uh, Arsenal Vision Podcast on Patreon, and uh, we're going to do a Doomcast this week, because why not? Overdue for one, so I'm going to try to get Tim and Dave from the Arsenal Mouse Podcast together and do a, a patrons-only Doomcast. Uh, Clive and I will be getting together to do Patreon stuff later this week. We try to do a lot of stuff. If you've never been over there, we do player spotlights. We do uh, game rewatches. We do some sort of um, 
guest contributor stuff where we have people on who aren't regularly associated with the pod to give it a different perspective. Scott has his analytics pod. We do transfer pods during transfer windows. So there's a lot over there. We take it really seriously and and try to make it something that you'd enjoy being a part of. We also have Discord, which is a a private chat that's got channels ranging from We Love You Arsenal to The Club Is Fucked to uh, Match Day chat and uh, food, travel, job inquiries, like all kinds of fun stuff. It's a great community and we would love to have you there. If you can't do it or don't want to do it, no big deal. Thrilled to have you here uh, and just thrilled to be together regardless. So thank you for that little spiel. Um, I will mention that I will be on the hot mic for the Manchester City game. So that should be a laugh riot. Uh, and if you want to find out more about that, we'll post more about that later. Anyway, let's get on to the game. So look, Tim, I think really quickly, lineup wise, like it's not super surprising. I, I think we will get into the question of whether Eddie and Kedia should be starting up front and, and what we've been doing with our striker position, because I think that's becoming mm. an interesting conversation. But really the only debatable selection, I think you would say, I mean, every every selection is debatable, but the only kind of surprising controversial one is the right back. Uh, Bellerin injured mm-hmm. with a groin injury, Cedric Suarez um, trying to compete with Dennis Suarez. Uh, for most pointless uh, 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 loan, and I, I did, I did do a meme. I did a meme. I don't know if you saw it. It's the the handshake one with the two really muscular arms, and one was Dennis Suarez loan, and the other was Cedric loan, and then the handshake was pointlessness. So we'll see how that turns out. But yeah, it's Socrates at right back, and I guess what I would ask you is. You're a young coach in your first job trying to lay down the law. You laid it down with Ganduzi. He did what you asked. He's back in the team. Same with Ceballos. Same with Pepe to some extent. I think you could argue. Um, but it's not happening for Maitland-Niles. And I guess what I would say is mm. how do you prioritize players doing what they're asked, the instructions that they're given, the the sort of off-the-pitch part of it, the training part of it, versus the performance part. Because I don't think anybody is going to argue that Socrates is as good at right back as Maitland-Niles is. Not that he's a superstar, but he he was quite good when he was playing there when Arteta first arrived. So are you behind Arteta with whatever this disciplinary move is, or do you wish that he would maybe set it aside in the interest of getting the better player out there? Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because um, as you say, on one hand, it's it's hurting the team. Um, and on the other, he does kind of have to lay down the law a bit. And I, I so I think my two thoughts on it would be this. I, I think I'm broadly behind him um, on this. I'm, I'm aware that I, I kind of I like Mikel Arteta. So things that are borderline like this, I'm probably more likely to side with him. Totally fair. Whereas, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas, um, you know, with Unai Emery, I, I didn't like. I didn't dislike him, but I didn't like him per se. So things that are on the borderline, I tended to go the other way, and I'm I'm quite aware of that. But the the two reasons I'd go with it for now um, are this. First off. As much as Arsenal are still playing, like the season isn't dead, they are still playing for something. And I think Arteta's kind of playing that up, uh, and rightly so. I think he's, he's, you know, at least in public, he's kind of saying, nope, we're still going for the Champions League um, kind of positions and all of that. And, and I think that's absolutely right. And they absolutely should be aiming for that because why the hell not? Um, and it's not a million miles away. But at the same time, this is still as close as possible to consequent or limited consequence football as Arsenal are probably ever going to have while Mikel Arteta's coach. So he might weigh it up and say, do you know what? At the moment, um, it's kind of worth it to stamp my authority on the group and not 
and and so also i guess this bleeds into my other thought which is emery um you know tried to put his foot down with certain players and i think we were broadly supportive of that when he did it Mm. um the problem was when he changed his mind um i think i think the problem was oh shit actually i need these guys so i'm just going to put them back in and you lose authority um and and that's that's the tricky thing with management right that's the art of management sometimes you've got to appreciate the potential upsides of doing something even when those upsides are invisible so for example like uh, the difference between zonal and man marking um uh, you know that's that's a pretty boring prosaic debate that comes out all the time when someone's zonal marks you know everyone says oh you should have been man marking but the the art of the manager is to say no okay it didn't go right that time but I know that generally speaking, it's still the right way to go or playing out from the back or things like that. You've got to kind of have a bit of an awareness of the hidden, invisible kind of upsides of doing things that not everyone can see. Um, And so I I think probably at this stage, particularly quite early, um, I I think it's it's probably a point worth making. I mean, obviously, we we don't really know what's happened. And the other thing is, is Maitland-Niles is quite often on the bench um which so you know he's not like totally out of there i i guess as well you'd say that the way the right back role is played in arteta's system the Mm. the the right back isn't asked to kind of overlap anyway so socrates isn't being asked to run up and down he's basically kind of almost tucking in like a third center half and and therefore, you can question how much we lose by having someone there like that. For me, it's it's not so much the getting up and down; it's the technical side. Yeah, I think that's that's I, where we lose something, right? It it seems it seems a bit of both for me. I mean, um, you know, it only serves to further isolate Pepe, I think. But I mean, defensively, yeah. he's he's really a liability back there. I mean, I, I realize that you know you could say. He's he's never going to be as good going forward, and you wouldn't expect that. But I, I think defensively, he's just getting rinsed. I mean, players are dancing past him with ease. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, you, you wonder with like Marie there, maybe Mustafi is a better bet for that position. Although it looks like at the moment he's he's kind of a doubt for Wednesday with a tight thigh muscle. So I wonder how much that informed him not starting. But um, I, I you know I think maybe Mustafi is. a better fit for that kind of quasi center half fullback thing and not least because when he event you know inevitably does a mustafi he might, he might be like 10 to 15 yards wider <laughs> of the goal yeah um, and therefore not just like putting people through on goal um so it's it, it is a really tricky one and it's difficult without all of the facts i i think he's pr- I think Arteta realizes he's hanging on, right? He's probably played Bellerin for a couple of games there that he's not really been fit for by the sound of it. And he's just waiting for Suarez to be fit so that he can put him there. And he's probably just thinking, oh, just one more game, just one more game. Just let's just do this for one more game. And uh, yeah, it's it it's not great. Um, I, I think the fact that we've gotten away with it the last couple of games and actually Socrates scored against Portsmouth, mm-hmm. however much you want to read into that, um, means it's kind of just about been justified. But um, I don't know if the, and, and this game easily could have gone the other way. And therefore, you know, I probably would have felt, you know, had we lost this game one nil, as we very much could have. I might be sitting here saying, no, you should have put Maitland-Niles in the team. But I, I think he's really trying as one of his first priorities to reverse the culture 
at Arsenal and um, you know perhaps a few eggs have to be broken in the making of that omelette yeah and, and look to be clear I think if you are sitting a guy like Aubameyang out of your team because he's not training hard enough you can I mean you can make an argument that even that's okay I tend to not be as sympathetic to that if you start letting 22 year old squad players who aren't even you know like star players just squad players who may not even have a future at the club dictate your lineups you know not have to follow your instructions not have to do whatever it is that you're asking of them and still get a place I think that becomes very problematic and I think if you want a meritocracy in football, it can't be a complete meritocracy. You know, for a Messi, for a Ronaldo, for for players that are superstars, you maybe have to carve out exceptions. But for the majority of, of the players, there should be a meritocracy. And, and at that point that you start letting 22-year-old squad players dictate the terms of their playing time, I, I think you're in a, yep. you have a real problem. So I don't have a problem with them doing it. I think it is a problem for us. And look, the news has come out uh, from The Athletic, I believe, that Hector, it was Ornstein who, who broke it, that Hector has has a groin injury, that he's been playing with it, that he's he's getting injections to sort of tolerate it. Could also explain why he's just not running right, which I think we've all been noticing. So it's all a concern. But, but Clive, I mean, look, this wasn't a great game. I, here's, the, here's the hard part, right? I think... We've all been beat up a lot. It has not been a fun season, I think it is fair to say. So when we win a game, even ugly, even 1-0 at home to West Ham, nobody wants to sit around and complain about it. Nobody wants their podcast to be, here are all the reasons we sucked in our 1-0 win. We want to celebrate the good passing of Pablo Marie or you know the, the good play of, of... I struggle to think of who's good play. We're, we're going to identify, but you know, surely someone's... Um, you know, I, I think... I think it is hard for me because I look at this game and I see a lot of warts, but I, I recognize that the you got to read the room, right? Nobody in the room wants to sit around and be miserable. What I will say is that first half was pretty poor, and ironically, we were more dominant in possession in the first half, yet generated just three shots and none on goal. I think it was the first time in like two or three years we'd had a home game with no shots on target at a half. What's interesting to me about it, Clive, is if you look at the, the passing statistics, Pablo Murray, 44 completed passes in the first half, 16 in the second. David Luiz, um, a 40, what was it, 47 completed passes in the first half, 16 in the second. And, you know, I, I just think when you look at this and you look at Shaka's game in the first half and, and Ceballos, there was a lot of lateral passing. There was not a lot of urgency to get the ball forward. And what I'm starting to look at with this is I think midfield is coming under more scrutiny. I think that Shaka's inclusion gave us that solidity at first when Arteta arrived, but I think now we are playing with two very sort of similar central midfielders who can do a lot of the same things, but maybe we don't have the threat or ball progression. So for you, in that first half where we really struggled to put them under too much pressure and create clear-cut chances, is the problem for you ball progression from deep? Is that is that where the problem's starting, or do you see a different issue? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because my head's in a similar place. Um, when you look at this game, not every night can be a Saturday night, right? So let's just let's just call the game what it was. It was a, a hard-fought, ugly win, right? So it's much like when you have a couple of injuries on your body. When one starts to heal, you start to feel the pain in the other one, right? It just goes like that. And so what you're actually probably saying, Elliot, is that our back line is looking a little bit stronger in some ways, defensively, and our forwards are sitting there with big price tags, quite bright, and we know they can do things. Last year, we were the third top goal scorer, so we know we've got goals in the team. What we're really saying is that connection to the forwards 
and maybe at some point, up to a certain degree, our ability to stop entry passes to their forwards is still an issue. Everything points to the midfield. I started to project forward in my mind this year about what we're going to do with our massive transfer budget, right? <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, we've got a couple of defenders that have just come in and maybe we might add... I'm not sure we're going to add one more. I'm, I can't, maybe we don't. You know, maybe add one more centre-back, maybe. I could potentially could see two or three midfielders coming in because that connection isn't there. That that layer of parting isn't there. That dominance isn't there. What I don't like is how these teams that we think we are so much better than, when they turn up at our house, they say, OK, we're going to have it with you. Um, a good example is Everton. You know, watch watch Everton turn up. You know, turn up a couple of weeks ago to us and really give us a tough game. They go to Chelsea and they and they lie over, they just roll over and it just makes you think. Well, why is that? Where is the dominance? Where is the control? Where is the penetration? Are we? Um, I know every game is different, but are we as fearsome as we'd like to think that we are? Now we're getting the results, but I do feel. We've lost uh, a little bit of stature in the game. And a lot of that, for me, comes from midfield dominance. If you win that area of the pitch, really win it, properly win it, then teams step away from you. They say, you know what, we can't control this game. That's the area of control, the interior of the pitch. We can't control it. So we now need to step back. Now, we did control the game from a passing perspective. We have a new driver of the bus in Tobias. I think the addition of Pablo Mari is... I feel maybe, um, I, I don't know what Tim feels about this, but maybe he has taken a little bit of Shaka's role. He yeah, can step forward absolutely. that five, mm-hmm. ten yards. I'm seeing a sense of duplication like I do with Azul and Pepe on occasion. I sense a similar duplication, so I'm thinking suddenly now Shaka's looking like, okay, do do we need that type there in that role? So Bias has taken over Shaka's bus driver role. But, you know, it's all from a distance. It's not... It's not threatening, it's not carrying, it's just nice and neat and moving around. But in the end, I'm still looking for Bami, I'm still looking for Saka to really hurt people. And so I think you're right, I think what it's really brought up, we're, we're slowly, slowly fixing the injuries in, in, us, in the team, in the setup. We're maximising the potential of the players. We're making sure they don't kill us anymore by putting them into slots. But there's something wrong in the middle of that pitch. That stops us being the team that we all think we are or want to be. And I think it's down to quality in that midfield area. And I think when we look forward to the summer, my eyes are looking for that because there's things that we don't do when it comes to ball progression. Mm. There's things we don't do when it comes to carrying. It's becoming more and more obvious to me. I think you nailed it, by the way. So so no one can quote statistics wrong like I can. I said 44 and 47. It was 55 and 57 passes for Marie and Louise respectively, uh, in the first half and just 16 each in the second half when I think the game was a little more open and we got the ball into the kinds of areas where we wanted to play a little more and got a few more shots anyway and create a few more chances. Um, But to your point, if you look at Pablo Marie's pass map in that first half and you look at Shaka's, they're doing the same job. They're either passing laterally, you know, across the middle of the park or they're pinging those, those diagonals up to Aubameyang and Saka in the half space or, or the, or the wing. So yeah, I, I definitely think that that ball progression there is an issue and that we've shown coming out of the blocks in a couple of games now that we are a little too comfortable passing the ball around the back and, and maybe we're not incisive enough. And some of that is Ozil. I mean, look, Tim, no one wants to have an Ozil debate less than I do. So let's not have an Ozil <laughs> debate. Let's just talk about 
this game. This was one of those games where he kind of frustrated because he wasn't really popping up into those spaces and helping us progress the ball and play those important final balls. The urgency wasn't there. And I think, you know, mm. when I watch the teams play that are that I, I consider really good, you know, City usually, granted, not at the weekend, unfortunately, typical of our luck. Um, Liverpool, a little less so because Liverpool do things so differently. They have such a different identity. But you see, you know what I see a lot of? Like when I watched Red Bull against Spurs, I think I mentioned this, when I watched City against Madrid, a lot of line-breaking passes in the center of the pitch, forward passes, five yards, 10 yards, little dagger balls into pockets of space between the lines. And we do not play those passes. And I, I don't know if it's because we have two central midfielders who are too alike, or we have a number 10 who's not often enough making himself available in those space. But do you have a sense of why the sort of central progressive aspect of our play just doesn't really rear its head enough with him in the game? I mean, I, I don't really have an idea of why. I, I think it's a very obvious problem. And, and what you and Clive were just talking about, what what are the tweaks that Arteta has already made in this team? He's taken Socrates right out and replaced him with either Mustafi or Pablo Marie. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you? That's not That's not about so much about defensive quality, although we could have that debate. That's about ball progression, right? He's taken Torreira out and put Ceballos in loosely speaking what's that about that's about ball progression so what what have we already learned that he's not happy with the ball progression with mm. with the existing options and so you know he he always plays david louise um why is that because he's a really good passer of the ball or at least he really tries to pass the ball through the lines um and he always plays Xhaka. and why is that so like you can tell that what he's looking at as an initial, you know, his initial look is at the technical quality of this team and the way that it moves the ball. And what we can already see by these changes he's made is that he's not happy with it. And I would still be quite surprised if he was happy even now. I think he's just thinking, shit, these are like, these are pretty much... so. Let's wind this back a bit. Sorry. I was thinking this. I was, I was thinking this. This, this is yeah, good. Yeah. I'm like, I, know, I think I know where you're going. I can't wait. Hurry up. Don't hurry up. <laughs> but I was thinking this before the game on Saturday, right? Where are Arsenal's best passers? They're all at the back of the pitch, mm-hmm. either the centre halves or Granite Xhaka. And then the highest one up is Ceballos, right? Because, because Pepe, brilliant dribbler, brilliant dribbler, not a very good passer. Doesn't pass with you know with much purpose. I think he's a bit loose technically in that sense. You know, Abamyang, that's not really his game. Lacazette, I mean, that's not really what he's there to do because he's the central pin. He's the one who should be receiving the passes. And and what's interesting is that Art is that Arteta hasn't changed Urzil yet. And and the thing is, is Urzil has to me become one of these passers at the back of the team. He's he's technically he's brilliant and that's valuable. I don't want to downplay that. He's one of the few players in our team who when he gets the ball, you relax, your heart rate goes down mm. and you think he's not going to just pass it out of play or part like he will absolutely look after that ball. What he doesn't really do anymore and how much this is down to his own decline or the shape of the team I, I haven't really worked out yet. What he doesn't do is punch that ball between the lines anymore and whether that's because you know that the whole five attacking lanes thing where more or less the five attacking players are all kind of in a line and whether Ozil needs to come out of that line a little bit 
Um, but he can't because he really needs to go and combine with Nicola Pepe because Pepe's crowded out anyway, even when Ozil was there. So Ozil can't really abandon that post because at the moment it's like, okay, here's the ball, Pepe. You've got four defenders in front of you and you've got Ozil. If you take Ozil away from him, you make his life even harder. And and for me, that is a really, really crucial pin in the team. And it's having an impact on the attack as well because no, nobody in that midfield, they all pass the ball nicely you know, from, say, the defensive third to the middle third, none of them has any impact in the final third. Even Ceballos, who I thought was probably our best player on Saturday, that's not his game. He's the final third. You know, he's 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 good at passing the ball around the middle of the pitch. What we really, really lack is that player that can either carry or pass the ball in the final third to one of the strikers. And it's it's kind of messing up how we have to line our team up. And I'm sure that you'll that bring this up later in the pod, Elliot. We don't have a great like wide left option. So we kind of put a Bamiang out there because there are no goals from midfield. And we think, right, if we put a Bamiang wide left, it means we can squeeze Nketiah or Lacazette into the team as well and have an elite goal scorer and a good goal scorer in there. And there's it's, it's like a little bit of a domino effect. And what I think Arteta has done is he's kind of beefed up the technical aspect of the back of the team. And and he's probably had to do this as well because of the conversation we've just had about taking Maitland-Niles out effectively and putting Socrates in. So that's a little bit of a technical deficit. What he doesn't have is he doesn't have the technical qualities in the front of the team. Mm. And I think that is is going to be a massive priority for him this summer. And just in conclusion, I, just to kind of agree with Clive, with those midfielders, even Genduzi, right, who, who I really, really like, I wouldn't be surprised if any of them were sold this summer. He won't sell all of them because you can't really do that. There is not one of those midfielders that I would look at and think, wow, that's really surprised me that he doesn't fancy that player. Um, I, I I think that's that's an area where revolution rather than evolution is required. Well said. And Clive, I want to give you a shot to enlarge on that and expand on that point because I think this, you know, look, in a game with a few incidents we can get to, I think the crux of the matter is this ball progression thing and, and not being able to access central spaces. And I mean, I, I know Manchester United weren't like dominant against City. No one is. But you look at what Bruno Fernandes does for them and, you know, the way he gives them access to central spaces and drives the ball through the middle of the pitch and creates chances that way. And you look at City and how they're easily sort of shunted out wide without De Bruyne. And, and I, look, I can't help but look at Ozil or Willock or whoever's playing that role and just realize that we are not accessing those spaces. And if you look at our pass map, I mean... For God's sakes, in the first half alone, when we were really dominating this game in possession, we played 333 passes. And I swear to you, you can draw a huge square from their goal outside their box to 10 yards on top of the D. There's not a, a completed pass in the center of the pitch anywhere to be found. The ball was moving to the wings. And who were our leading passers? Mari, Luis, Ceballos, Shaka. Nothing going into Ozil in the center of the pitch. Nothing going into those central spaces, allowing us to turn and run it at defenders and push them back and then find those pockets in behind them. So, uh, Clive, I mean, that to me is where the breakdown is. And, you know, again, not trying to go overly negative here. We did win, and that's great. We had a lot of possession. But just trying to identify how we can be how we can put teams under more pressure. I mean, you can't have three shots, none on target at home to West Ham. So, for me, that's that's the diagnosis. I mean, do you have—you you wanted to expand on what Tim was saying, though. 
Well, well, Tim got there in the end, right? So he's all. And, right, um, fair enough. <laughs> and now, well, the thing is, it's ball carrying, isn't it? You know, and and, and the, that was his final point, and he's absolutely right. So when you look at those top four passes, Sabias, Louise, Mari, and Shaka, when I say that to you, you know what type of passes they're going to play. It's the next pass we haven't got, right? So we're asking really, we're lacking those two tens, really, or eights, whatever you want to call them. And at the moment, we've got Ozil and Aubameyang playing those roles. So Aubameyang plays it, but he doesn't really want to play it. But he plays it as a, a start point to where he wants to be, to be on the end of things. So he is not a creator. He's not a linker. He has improved on that massively. If he moves one slot over, I think we, we're absolutely fine with him standing there in the centre-forward position because I think he's really improved his back-to-goal, etc. But he's not a build-up merchant. Ozil's lacking that um, bravery. He's happy... Stats padding, okay, I've said it. He's happy stats padding. He's happy moving it. He's got his assists in open play. And you know what? I, I wouldn't trust trusted many other people to get that assist dead right the way he did it. So we know what he is now. He isn't the same devastating player as he used to be. And so we're then, we've, you know, at the moment, our best sort of player in this sort of space is, is Saka at the moment. I think he's really showing the consistency around how we progress the ball, how we create the movements. And Pepe, we're learning about, and he's one good game, one bad game, one good half, one bad half. We can't really rely on him yet, although we think he's got the skill set. So we are just developing. This team is just developing. And we look a little bit um, like there's, there's, there's a big hole still. In the in the in the in the centre of our team, there isn't a defining player that says. You mentioned Bruno Fernandez, but that's in the top of my mind now. But that says, you know, he plays for Arsenal. That is Arsenal's midfield. We need maybe two of those. And between Sabayas, Guendouzi, even Torreira, even Shaka, they're, they're good players. But you know, we said in the podcast last week, didn't we? Had it about Guendouzi. It wouldn't surprise me if he got sold. Because I just think there needs to be something else. There could be an opportunity to make money. This business, we haven't got money. I mean, the only, the only I pushback think, I would have is if you want to change the profile of the players in that part of the pitch, sell Granite Shaka, who you know who he is, you know what his ceiling is, and you can get reasonable money for him and change the profile. Why sell the 20-year-old who still has a, you know, it, a higher ceiling? Yeah, it makes sense. And you only send a 20-year-old because you get stupid money for him. That's the only reason you would do okay, it. Okay, right? yeah, that's, so, that's fair and, and if you're not doing it, then you don't. If you're not getting it, you don't do it. There's no point. Uh, and, and, I, and I just think we need to develop a new face, and it's going to come from that area. So we look at the summer, I said earlier, that's the area. And at the moment, we, we can't solve all the problems we want to solve with that group of players. And when we get when we get stood against, we haven't got the ability to step past people drive people, shake people about, move systems. We haven't got that moment. Yeah. You know, the the problem, I think, ultimately is, I don't know that Shaka or Ceballos or Ganduzi, any of them, none of them are bad players. I just think all of them can give you what all of them gives you. You know what I mean? Like, I think Ganduzi can do what Shaka does. I think he can do a little more. I think Ceballos can do what Ganduzi does a little differently. I think Ganduzi can do what Ceballos does. Like, we have a lot of players that can do the deep distribution thing and and pick the ball up off the center backs and spray it. I think Shaq is obviously a little more static in doing that, but maybe his long distribution is a, a little better from deep. But yeah, the, the lack of athleticism, drive ball progression, the lack of ability to find pockets between the lines and turn and drive forward. I mean, that that's 
theoretically Ozil's role. But think about it, guys. When was the last time we were any good? Like consistently any good? Over the last two or three seasons, the only times we've consistently been any good was when Aaron Ramsey was playing. I mean, even under Emery, we had one really good run, and it was when Ramsey was in the team. And that's when you were playing Shaka and Ramsey, or you know, a, a central midfielder alongside Ramsey. And what did Ramsey do? He bombed on, but he could also run back and cover. And right now we're playing two central midfielders who have none of that dynamism, none of that goal-scoring threat, none of that running. And it makes us very easy to hold at bay, I think, at times. Um, especially if Ozil is not on his game. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I say we are 16 points down on this time last year. I know every season is different, but that's a, that's a lot of points. Nobody wants to be doomy and gloomy, and I still believe in Arteta, and I think we're going in the right direction now, but when you're sitting in ninth place and your ceiling for the season is probably around 58 points and you're out of the Europa League in the first knockout round, like, yeah, it's it's going to cause some introspection and, and you're going to need to rethink the squad because while you can point to Emery as being a huge culprit, and of course I'm happy to do that, you can't point to Emery as being a huge culprit without also pointing to the squad and realizing that there's a ceiling on this squad that's not going to get us where we need to go. So, of course, there's going to be an inquest. Um, we always said that, though, didn't we? We yeah, always said... It's, it's got to be a combination. There's, there's, you know, the word we used was limits. The limits are going to come out. And I was, I am surprised how Arteta has coached higher limits than I suspected, to be honest, particularly defensively. But as soon as we start to stabilise then your eyes naturally go to the limits. And that's exactly what we're doing tonight. Yeah. Um, Tim... The the first half had had a few sort of major incidents in a, in it, and you know, look, we, we've never been a podcast that picks apart refereeing, so I'm not going to do it. Other than to say that I thought, again, the standard of refereeing in this game was poor. We certainly should have had a penalty when Lacazette was. I mean, what, what would you say, clotheslined? Is that what it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what. I that mean, it, it's it unbelievable. Was, it was UFC. Yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> I mean. It, it is weird, right, how certain things you can do to players. Like, yeah. you can grab them around the neck and, and try to choke them to death and maybe get away with it. But if your toe touches their toe and they go down, you say, well, yeah. there's contact. There was contact. Well, that's a hell yeah, of a lot of contact. Old, like, <laughs> yeah, or the old, like, if you tickle someone's chin and it's always raised his hands there. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> if you, like, visibly try to rip their shirt off. It's, it's just what and footballers it's, do, yeah. Um, it, it's weird, yeah. It, it is very weird. And, and, and I saw that unfold. I mean, it was difficult to miss inside miss the stadium, it? to be honest. It was so weird. Everyone just went, what? Like, that was beyond, like, the normal amount of jostling and wrestling that goes on. So, Well, quickly, yes. since you were in the ground, this wasn't a question I was going to ask you, but I might as well get your perspective. Like, it felt to me like VAR was desperately trying to find a reason to chalk off that goal. <laughs> How was it in the ground when you have no idea what's going on? Yeah, so... and. Uh, yeah, it, so I, I had no perspective on whether it was offside or not. Even though I was pretty well positioned, it all just went too quickly. And uh, well, I, th- I think when two players end up in front of the goal like that, you always, you know, in old money, you would have looked at looked at the assistant referee anyway. Um, and and you know, Sean Massey, I think is a, is is a really good uh, assistant. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and my my mate next to me, honestly, he because like I looked at him, I was like, "Did you think I was offside?" He was like, "No idea," but he said, "If she says it is, I bet it is." And um, and so we we just kind of so I I had no idea. The thing was, the longer it took, the more I thought this is going to be a goal, because you know you think if they're taking a long time over it, that means there's some doubt, 
because usually what happens is you get a little stoppage and it just says, you know, no goal, no penalty, whatever, and, and everyone gets on with their lives. But, um, yeah, I, it, it was weird, actually, because as much as I'm like a like huge, huge VAR sceptic, I don't like it, don't want it, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it's just because it went our way on this occasion. It didn't <laughs> yeah, then it's feel, the best. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's a statement of the obvious, but it didn't well, can, feel like as much of an atmosphere killer can I explain why why i think that oh sorry you probably had an answer so why don't you give it (laughs) instead of me yeah i i think it's i think it's actually conversely and weirdly because of the weight introduced some tension (laughs) into it whereas usually it's just like a fairly lifeless like so so i I have a sort of different take can i just quickly interrupt because it's so on brand for me and Mm. people are screaming into their podcasting listening devices right now saying just let the guy speak but um when a goal has been given and then there's a pause for a VAR check, it sucks, right? Because it yep. should be an emotional yep. moment and you can't have that emotion until they tell you it's okay. So you're just sitting there when they do. But this was given offside. So that's normally yes. a time when you're going to be low emotionally. But then the VAR check yep. gives you the hope that this might turn into a goal. So suddenly the anticipation is different. You're not waiting for your parade to get ruined. You're rained on. You're yep. waiting for your parade to be granted in a way, for lack of a, a better turn of phrase. Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense, and and I think um, I think that's one of the uh, the big kind of uh, issues people have had with VAR that that some people perhaps didn't foresee that it's it's seen as taking things away. Um, you know, it's seen as like this big like party pooping thing, which which, which it often is, um, and. And and so quickly, I'll go into this. I think also what's happened, right, is a lot of people, not everyone, a lot of people um, think that like refereeing's rigged or there's a massive injustice against their team. And they saw VAR as an equaliser and as a giver of justice. And that's not happened um, for a lot of people emotionally. And the reason for that is because the system is not rigged and it does not go against their team any more than anyone else. But I think a lot of people have reflected on this. And instead of thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe, just maybe it wasn't rigged against my team. And like, it really is just a case of some you get and some you don't. They've gone, no, VAR must be rigged now. That's the system that's rigged against us. And that's like, that's going to be my new point of anger. Mm. Um, it, you know, my, my bottom line with VAR was always, it won't make people happy. Um, but, but, you know, to be fair on this occasion, it made, um, 90% of the ground very happy. Yeah. As, as someone who refuses to be happy, even in the best of times, I will tell you that, that this did make me happy when they finally gave it. So that's good. I mean, look, the, the game was, was interesting in the sense that, um, you know, we won it. I, I thought the second half was better. We pushed and created a little bit more, I thought, and and I think in the end, maybe, maybe, maybe we're deserved winners. But but West Ham certainly had the chances to to make it go a different way. And Clive, I think we should talk about Pablo Marie because, in general, the reaction to his performance has been good. Arteta praised him after the match. He certainly played a lot of passes. Um, some of them progressive and nice. Some of them just maintaining possession, as I outlined earlier, 55 passes in the first half, 16 in the second half, but but certainly looked comfortable passing. A left footer on the left side, so maybe making Shaq a little redundant in that way too, but you know, seemed fine. Having said that, it is so interesting how football is analyzed in, in large part down to a couple of moments. Um, Shodran Mustafi is not a bad footballer, except for about 90 seconds of every match. And in those 90 seconds, he will lose you that match. 
Um, Pablo Marin made a really, really bad error on the halfway line. And I have no idea how Antonio managed to miss Holler in the box and, and fail to have a tap-in goal there. But he did, quite hilariously and quite happily. And I just wonder if, you know, that and then the other Antonio header, which I think Marie maybe had a hand in in not defending properly. I, I mean, it's a couple of errors that don't result in goals. And as a result, I think we can look at his performance in a positive way. But I ask you, would this analysis be different if West Ham hadn't contrived to blow those chances? I mean, how, how much weight should we be putting on, a, I think at least in the first case, a pretty bad error uh, in a game that overall otherwise was probably pretty encouraging. Okay, so <clears throat> so I don't worry about the error. Mistakes happen. It's all about how you recover from the mistakes. That's the key thing. Uh, and if they keep happening, then we got a problem. As it's his first premiership game, his first game at home, I think we've got to be a little bit sensible and start to look at what potentially he can bring. And... You know, with my eyes, uh, particularly in the Portsmouth game and this game, I didn't look at him, which tells me he was fine. I didn't say anything there that was that was looking made me think we've got a problem here. And to quote Tim's heart rate analogy, I don't worry about him when he's on the ball. I think he looks really smooth, really balanced. He knows when to step between the lines, knows when to pass between the lines. What I really liked, I said on one of the podcasts last week, is that he knows when to drop off early when there's no pressure on the ball. But if he feels he's in a situation where he's exposed in space and he might have to do a sprint, he immediately steps up on his man. He steps up on him, steps up on him. So what he's really doing is he's almost playing a he's, he's playing a cute game with his forward. He's always stepping up, stepping up, stepping up, then drop off. But the forward's not ready to run. And so he drops off and he looks quicker. He's very cute about how he manages his man. He manages him by his own movement, which means he's a heads-up, relaxed player. To play, I know this comes from Brazil, I read all the stuff beforehand, but he had the ability to play the high line, but let everyone tell me he's quite slow. I'm thinking, how is he doing this? So I started looking at the videos, you can see him doing it. He literally makes his forward dance, which means he's always in control, which means he must be in connection with his next central defender to make sure that he knows where the line is. So that's really interesting what he's Except bringing. he did get it wrong. I mean, badly wrong in yeah, one instance, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's he, a high-stakes game of poker you're playing, right? Yeah, he will do. And and, and that's it. And, and Leno got it wrong against Olympiakos. And this is going to happen. It's going to happen. And my assessment of him is left side centre back, six, seven million quid. I quite like him. I really do. I like him a lot. And I like the fact what everyone's saying about him, also, we can't hear it, but his communication, his leadership, his size, his composure. I like him a lot. And I'll just, I just literally, while I was on the podcast, I watched the video of um, him playing against Liverpool in the World Club Cup final, just to remind myself of him, because you had a few doubts before the podcast. And when you see him against those players, then we, the players that we know, that we know are good, he is not in any way embarrassed against those players. And we're talking Salah here. You put him away, you know, in that game. So I wouldn't worry so much, Elliot. I would just let it come, let it flow, let it come, see where he is. In this game, if anything, we probably ended up into a back four and the situation is on the right-hand side. Sorry, a back three. Situation is on the right-hand side. Because when we have a back three, although I'm not against a back three, but what we tend to do is pass around the back three. And West Ham let us pass around the back three. The fact they had 14 shots off of, of 180-odd passes, that's too many. So you've got to say to yourself, we're having all these passes, yet we're still conceding shots. 
So that's a worry for me. That's a worry again. That's a worry for me for midfield. I don't think we're athletic enough to cover the spaces. I still don't feel it. So Bias and Shaka, we get what we get. We get we get passing. We get nice passing. We don't get defensive um, sprinting, and we don't get the carry forward. But we mentioned that earlier. But on Pablo Marie, I think we've got a really good player here. And unless I'm misreading this, I don't sense a problem at all. Yeah, I'm glad because you you know this stuff better than I do. I will say I am a Marie skeptic right now, and that will surprise no one because you know again miserable bastard block me Yankee Gunner, um, and and it's like I have to admit Tim like maybe I am a snob maybe that's the issue because I have to admit that his pedigree is a bit of an issue for me coming around to him right so you know he was at City when he was younger he didn't make it there no shame a lot of good talent there, a lot of money spent, young player, goes to Spain, doesn't make it there either. And, you know, he's in prime, and there's a reason in his prime, as a guy who had been in Europe, he was back in Brazil. At least that's my read on it. Now, that doesn't mean he can't be good, but I have to admit that that pedigree worries me, and, and I'm always a little nervous about slow center backs. You know, I think about Paramedesacker, which is going to be the natural comparison, the gate, the... um you know, the 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 way they run. And I, I thought that Marie was a little quicker. And in this game, I think I realized, no, that that's not really the case. And the problem I have with the Murtisacker comparison is like, Per Murtisacker made it work because he was a next level genius at stand-up tackling and positioning himself who had won a World Cup for Germany and played in the Bundesliga for years before he came to us. And admittedly, at the very end of his career, when the pace totally went, he kind of became unusable at that point. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't know that the comparison is apt just because the pedigree is not apt. Am I just being a snob and letting pedigree dictate my, my interpretation of the player a little too much here? At the moment? Yes. Um, Thank you. there's, there's, there's <laughs> not enough of a data point. Um, I don't know if this makes good podcasting material or not, but I'm going to come down in the middle <laughs> because I've, uh, Everybody you know, loves I've a seen... centrist just check in with American <laughs> politics right now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what we should do, what I should do, Elliot, is engage with um, the loonies like you. And uh, no, um, no, no so, don't like, do that. I mean, that's the last thing <laughs> you want to do. <laughs> um, no, so like I've so I've I've seen a fair bit of the player, but obviously, I've seen him in a completely different setting, right? I've seen him in Brazil, but on the flip side of that. I've seen him in the best Brazilian team probably of my lifetime. Like it is ridiculous how good Flamengo are at the moment. Like for a South American team, I I think, you know, I, I think they're like one of the best teams in the world. Um, even given that they're playing in South America, I really do. I think they're that good. Um, but obviously they're playing against slightly weaker opposition and all of that. My, my take on Marie remains exactly the same. I, th I think he'll be a good, solid 7 out of 10 defender. I think that's what we've bought. I think you're right. He, he does play some like high stakes kind of poker stuff because he stands off and then sometimes he engages and he really, you know, he really does like doing that kind of getting inside the defender shorts when they got their back to goal. When they've got their back to goal and they can't run, he is right up their backside. But otherwise, he's generally quite good at measuring his distances. You're right. He will get that wrong a few times. And he did get it wrong uh, once on Saturday. I think he only he made one mistake, really, in the game. Um, I, I think also I should kind of... Um, perhaps give this a little bit of context in so far as he's just come out of pre-season because the Brazilian season ended in December. He signed for Flamengo in July when he would have been in mid-pre-season by European standards. And 
he was thrown straight into competition. Flamengo were in three competitions. He was playing every three days um, right up until the middle of December. They went to the World Club Championships, etc., etc. So he went from like dormant pre-season to into the frying pan, like out of the frying pan into the fire, playing every three days. You know, Brazil's a big old country. Um, those away games are tough. It's much like the States in that respect. Um, except the league's not regionalized. So when you play an away game on Wednesday night, you're traveling like thousands of miles. So it, it takes it out of you. And then he's had a couple of months off and now this is the beginning of his season again. So I don't know. It's it, it's a little bit like uh, whatever the footballer's equivalent of um, or the football fitness equivalent of jet lag is. He's going to have a bit of that at the moment. Um, but I I think Mertesacker is like, is a good is a good comparison, even though I don't think he's totally the same because yes, he lacks pace, but he looks to mitigate that. And actually I think he's quite good at mitigating it because he's very good at judging distances and judging space. He played in a system at Flamengo where the left back Felipe Luis was bombing up and down and playing as a left winger basically. So he's very used to covering that space. And I'm pretty sure that this is, you know, when when they scouted him, they looked at all of this. I I I think I don't think he's going to be transformational. I don't think he's going to be a disaster. I think he's going to be a really good, solid seven out of ten defender. He does a bit of high risk, high reward stuff. Um, a lot of good defenders do that. Koscielny did it, um, and ultimately he will be judged on how often he gets those right. He will get those wrong every now and then. I think that that's just part of the deal, exactly like it was when we bought Lauren Koscielny. Sometimes you're going to get a red card because someone's going to get in behind him and he's going to have to pull a shirt and he's going to have to take the red card. Um, you know, I, I think that's just, that's pretty unavoidable unless you're recruiting at the absolute elite level. Um, so at the moment, I'm yeah, I, I'm the kind of the centrist on this. I think he'll be good, decent, solid, not transformational. I, I think he'll be like a centre-back Monreal. Let's put it that way. Mm, I would take that. That I would certainly take. And look, I am the hysterical irritant on this pod. That is my job. And, and I think that that sort of lubricates the erudite... Uh, uh, thoughtful conversation that follows. So uh, again, there is a reason that, that we joke that you should block me on Twitter. I get that I I am probably going a little too dark on some of this stuff. I I want to be where you guys are headspace-wise. I want to be a happy, optimistic Arsenal fan. I, I am definitely on board with the Arteta experience. Um, you know, I, I think you don't wind up ninth, though, and you don't wind up on pace for mid-50s points if everything in the squad is quite right. And I just hope that we are making the right moves to solve them. And certainly center back is a very important position where we have been very poor for a very long time. We are looking to solve that with someone like Saliba, who could be a superstar, and I cannot wait for him to arrive. We're also looking to solve that with by you know outsmarting the market with someone like Marie, and you have to hope that comes off. And if it does come off, what a huge boost it is to get a center back that can play for you, you know, game in, game out at a high level for seven, eight million pounds. So, yeah, obviously this is one that if it goes right for us, um, it's it's a big win. And we'll, we'll still have to see how that plays out. First game, I think the problem for me was just that there was a lot of really glowing, um, positive discussion of this performance. And it felt a little out of tune to me with what I thought was a first half that had a couple of worrying moments in it. Namely, the the air at the halfway line. That if that's a goal, I think we're discussing differently. But that is um, that is not what happened. So let's talk about what actually did happen. And uh, Clive, so there's there's really two issues here. One is the the front line generally, and the other is the substitution. So why don't we start 
with the substitution pattern, because I think the one thing that maybe has come in for more criticism than anything else under Arteta is the way he subs, when he subs, who he subs. Um, mostly people have been right behind him, but I think there's been some critique of the substitution patterns. And I, I thought it was interesting chasing the game that he went like for like uh, when he took Pepe off and brought on Nelson. Um, no problem with Nelson, like the player, obviously, uh, coming off a, a really good game, a man-of-the-match kind of performance, and that's encouraging. But I, I didn't really understand the decision to go like-for-like like there. Um, you know, I felt maybe he could have taken Socrates off and reconfigured the, the back line a little bit and, and added added Nelson in that way. Um, I also thought maybe Ozo could have come off, ironically, because he winds up getting the assist and, and Lacazette gets the goal. So... All good. But, I mean, how did you feel about the subs he made when he made them, and in particular going like-for-like like with Pepe and Nelson? I, I suppose it's a hindsight thing. It, it worked out. You, you sort of called it. Um, look, there's, there's things I would like to see, but I don't need to see them tomorrow. I'd like to see certain things tried out. Well, we're not playing to see tomorrow. What more. So, in fairness, like you're, not, yeah. you're definitely not going to see them tomorrow. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just want to, you know, there are things I would like to see tried out. But at the moment, we're trying to, we're trying to rebuild this club. We're trying to rebuild our form. We haven't been beaten this year in the league, and the two defeats we've had in this reign have been incredibly painful. They seem to be bigger than what they actually, what they actually are. But well, they, well they are yep. what they are. Yeah, but they, they, they're really hurtful defeats. And on the way, the way the Chelsea one happened, and obviously the way the Olympiacos one happened, they feel like five defeats. When you look, when you strip it back, we're the only we're the only unbeaten team in the in the, in the league this year so far. So there's a level of solidity. There's a level of base. So we wanted this. We wanted this rebuilt. We wanted structure. We wanted patterns. We're not sure about Arteta's substitution patterns yet. And you know what? I'm not sure if he is yet. He's, he's just doing it for the first time. He's the youngest manager in the league and he's and he's learning as he goes. By making these substitutions, I don't see an issue at all in doing it based on you know performance. I think Tim's pointed a couple of times previously that, and particularly when you're in the ground, you can see this. You can see maybe there's a bit of changing of mind that happens, then there, there needs to be a bit of changing of mind. And I think that's something that maybe we don't see when watching on TV. We don't see that indecision. So what I do see is somebody that's trying to find the right thing to do and really caring about it. And I have no issue with this one. Maybe I would have gone a slightly different way. But in the end, when Ozil's heading the ball across to the other substitute, he's been proven correct. And we've got the win and we walk away. Yeah, I mean... Look, the goal of, of substitutions is to get the result. And when you get the result, I think you were entitled to then not be questioned, right? So, Absolutely. I, I mean, do I agree with that substitution? Who cares? Because I'm not the coach, and he won, and I didn't. Um, and, and, you know, all he does is win and draw. He doesn't lose games in the Premier League, so credit to him. Um, I, think, I think another thing, Elliot, I think what he's doing, he's saying, these are my best available players, and... And these are my the first two off the bench are my next available best players. I'm going to play them. You know, and I think mm. sometimes maybe that's why Socrates is playing. These are ones that are doing the, my non-negotiables. So you guys are playing. We're thinking, is the balance quite right? Is it right? But these are guys that are showing the right things for me. We can't want these non-negotiables. We can't want leadership. We can't want man management. And when the moment comes, oh, well, we don't want to do that for, for this guy because we like this guy. We think he should play. We've got to stick with him and say, no, we want him to rip this culture apart, to change it, to raise the standards. These are the best 13 players on the day. These are the ones that played. The rest of you, you got work to do on to get back into the team. Maybe apart from maybe Martinelli, we wonder where what's happening there potentially. But apart from that, 
the rest of you have got work to do to get into my good side, and this is what you got to do. And I, I've got, we, we've got to support him, really. We've got to support him because this is a long-term project, so we've yeah, just look, got to. I, I want to be clear about something. No matter how miserable I may come off as sounding sometimes, I... I am all the way behind Arteta. And I think given that he is young, I think, look, I was always of the opinion, Clive, that experience doesn't matter because what matters is mm. you're good at it or not. Um, and you'll find that out when you start doing it. But I think what I'm realizing is experience matters in certain situations, right? And certainly yeah. when the before the game, running, training, coming up with a game plan, I don't know how important experience is to that. But in the game, when your heart's pounding out of your chest and the result is on the line, and you've never done it before, or you've done it a handful of times, yeah, you know what? That probably is where experience matters, and that's probably the part he will get better and better at, and that's really exciting, because I don't think well, he's so bad at I, it. Yeah, go ahead. I, one, one last thing. I think this is where I think there may be a development in the club in the summer. I mean, he was he hastily put together his back backroom team. We're still getting to know them. And honestly, this is the, this is the time you lean on your backroom. This is the time you lean on the people who've got the aerial view. It's the time you turn around and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And those backroom guys, we're still learning about, and we're still we're trying to note their experience, and we're still trying to note their roles and responsibilities. And I think as they they are developing, as much as Arteta is developing in that role, and maybe what's required of them. And I, I know when I... When I when I run a team, I, I the people are we do we don't make a substitution any one of us. There's three of us involved in the team I coach, and and those people we all do it together. I think those people really need to to help him as well and support him because he is the youngest manager in the league. Well, let me ask you this. I, you know, I wonder another thing that could be different in the summer is just getting the the fitness levels right. I, I feel that the players look heavy legged, and you know, this is Arteta's first time managing the fitness of players as well. Um, maybe he's gotten it right, maybe he's gotten it wrong. But one thing that seems pretty clear to me, uh, by the way, we are not going to Tim just yet because he is uh, in the restroom. So if we went to him, all you would hear now is the sound of a powerful stream. Oh, he's back. Um, I, I am back, yeah. <laughs> okay, so then, so then I can ask you this. I mean, I feel that the intensity and um, consistency of our pressure, our press, has dropped off over the last couple of weeks. And I don't know if that's because Arteta has decided he wants to play a little more possession game and, and press a little less, or if just the fitness levels aren't where they need to be or whatever the case may be, do you get a sense, A, that the press has dropped off a little bit, that, it, that it's not as consistent, and B, that that is maybe not the plan, but just a, a result of maybe a lack of freshness? Yeah, I think so. I think um, it's interesting because this is what happened with Emery, right? He kind of started with the press and then was convinced not to do it. And uh, that that to me, I, I'm sure freshness comes into it. Don't get me wrong. But I'm also sure there's an element of hmm, maybe I don't have the players to do this. Um, I, I'm not really sure he does from midfield. I, th I think all of those midfielders prefer to be deeper on the pitch and therefore that doesn't really work brilliantly. Um, you know, and then in the forward line, I'm not sure that, you know, Pepe, Aubameyang are these like really pressing players, um, you know, I, and I think that's part of the reason, part of the reason he's so attracted to playing one of Lacazette or Nketiah because they, they both kind of are. Um, and then Ozil, he's not really much of a presser either. So I think it's probably mainly personnel. There probably is a sense of the, you know, the freshness aspect to it. And, and look, 
since um uh, what i've been really interested in kind of is is what's changed since the midwinter break since they went to dubai since um you know arteta had a week or so to take stock and look back and think a little bit and and i think you're right i think that's one of the things that's gone um you know stuff we talked about earlier as well like bringing sabios in and you know bringing mustafi slash mari in you know, and upping the, the the kind of technical ante a little bit. But yeah, I, I think this is something that's fallen away. And I think it's probably mainly because he doesn't really have the players to do it. I think also what's changed since then is Martinelli hasn't played as much because I think he's realised that getting Martinelli and Aubameyang into the same team is very tricky. If you've got Martinelli in your forward line, you're, you're much better equipped to go for a high press. Um, that That's a player that not only can do that, I think loves doing that and does it really, really well. And without that profile of player up there, you know, I mean, Pepe, Aubameyang and Ozil, I think actually that's perhaps harsh on Aubameyang, but, you know, when you've got Pepe and Ozil in your front five, Aubameyang can do it, but it's not his specialty. I mean, that's, you know, and then Xhaka and Ceballos, like in deep, deep, deep midfield. I mean, the distances and the physical profile isn't really there to do it, I don't think. So I think that's the main reason. Let me ask you a question, Tim. In general, I think this is the worst quality Premier League I've ever seen. Um, in terms of, look, there is no question there are more teams that are better than they used to be. You know, 10 years ago, the bottom eight or nine teams in the Premier League were just dreck. They were terrible. But... I think the quality of the entertainment this season is generally not very good, actually. I, I, and I'm not just saying that it's some, maybe it is because I've just watched a lot of Arsenal and for at least, you know, half the season we were unwatchable and for parts of the season since then we, we haven't been super entertaining. But in general, you know, it feels like just flowing moves are down, shots are down, the, you know, the, I'm not saying goals aren't being scored, but just that the caliber of the play is down in terms of quality. And I wonder, is this the sort of Klopp legacy? Is the fact that pressing mm-hmm. has become so in vogue and the game has played so much more in transition now, um, is it having that impact that teams pack the midfield, they crowd the midfield, they you know jump on passers, there's a lot of tactical fouling? Is it, you know, do, do you agree with me that the, the, the quality of the entertainment has declined this season and that maybe there's there's a tactical reason for that? So I, I agree with you on the tactical reason, um, on the pressing, uh, on the kind of pressing front. And I also think the reason for that is because teams realize they can't do what a Guardiola team does. They can't like they can't put, go and pass. You, you need a particular quality of player to do that. And what's so instructive about Liverpool is that you look at that midfield. There, there isn't a superstar in it. There are good players. There isn't a superstar in that Liverpool midfield. They're all like... You know, basically, they all fit a physical profile and he can play any three of them pretty much at any one time and get the same thing, get the same output. And that's that's, you know, unless you manage super elite players, you've got a much better chance of turning your players into, um, you know, into a team that can that can perform physically than a team that can really kind of push the ball around technically as that's. I think it's just as simple as that. So I don't think it's just, um, you know, you're right. What usually happens is the most successful team, everyone just copies. Um, But I I don't think it's necessarily the fact that people have looked at Liverpool and said, right, we should do that. I think people have looked at Liverpool 
and just said, well, we've got a better chance of becoming a a working replica of that than we have of Man City's Guardiola. As for your point on the the entertainment, I don't quite agree because um, I I don't really like (laughs) the Guardiola style of football. Well, I don't don't really enjoy it. I, I suppose it depends how it's played. I really enjoyed the way, you know, the peak Wenger teams played because they had that physical edge and because they moved the ball quickly and it was one touch and it was devastating and it was quick and it was basketball style. Mm. I, I don't really like the more deliberate. Um, you know, I, I've, I've said this before. I, I think I prefer direct football just because um, I think a lot more teams can play it. Um, and it makes games more competitive and it's just better than watching a team pass a horseshoe while the other team has 10, 10 players in defence. I think this is a means by which more teams can compete. Um, so it, it, in terms of its overall imp- impact on the entertainment, I, I don't really know. Like I find it difficult to like every season. Someone says this right every season there's always a reason to believe it's the worst season ever. And it's either because one team's running away with it and people just go, oh, that's because it's crap or no team runs away with it. There's lots of really like people said this about the Leicester season, right? When like all of the top five and six got dragged down a peg or two and everyone said, oh, that's because it's a crap season because they're all rubbish. Like there's always a reason for people to believe it's the worst season ever. And I I, I don't quite buy that. The, the one <clears throat> quick thing I will add is I do think that the um, the rule at goal kicks, for example, where you can play the ball inside the area, I think that has had a subtle impact. And I still think teams are kind of getting to grips with that a little bit. And, and actually what you're getting is I don't think teams spend so long building moves now because when you pass out from the back, one of two things is basically going to happen. You either do it perfectly, which means you move up the pitch quickly or you fuck it up and you turn the ball over right next to your goal. And and I do actually think there's been a kind of excitement in that. Like if you're talking, and, and I think that leads more to teams being more aggressive in pursuing the transition because you think, right, they're taking the ball like 10 yards further back now. We can really, really get into them. And what kind of happens is the midfield disappears. Um and so teams either play over the top of that successfully and then they're through or they don't and they turn the ball over and, and it kind of assures some kind of uh, goal mouth impact uh, mm. both ways. I, I, I think I agree with the, the idea that the technical kind of level has probably gone down a bit and then it's just a matter of personal taste whether you like that or not. It's weird. I mean, you look at pass maps from from the, the bigger clubs and the dominant teams and like it's clear the smaller teams have figured out you just pack the midfield and then try to defend in the box because what's ha- what, what do all the pass maps look like? You get about 30 yards out from goal and everything's out to the wings. And I think that's the development in football that, that's a little less enjoyable for me is everything's out to an overlapping fullback to cut it back. Everything's out to a wide player to try to beat a man off the dribble. The Jack Wilshire Norwich goal or, you know, what Alexis and Ozil used to do on the edge of the box or you go back to, you know, Fabregas splitting splitting defenses, things like that. Ramsey running in behind for, you know, a layoff like the, the Giroud flick. Th- those things seem to be gone, and a lot of that is there's just no space to operate in the middle of the park anymore, and everything goes out wide. So, you know, I just I think it's become much more a game of crossing the ball and pullbacks and getting the ball into the box from wide positions. Um, and I don't know that that's aesthetically as pleasing to me. But that, you know, look, 
the games are still entertaining. It is rich of me to say it's not been a fun season. Uh, well, maybe being in ninth is a part of that. So, so, you know, I'll admit that there's some bias there. Clive, you have any quick thoughts on sort of like the, the nature of, of how Premier League football is being played right now? Yeah, I'm so, I'm so, well, it's, it's all been driven by statistics, hasn't it? It's all been driven by statistics. People are longer kicking it from goalkeeper long because you're giving the ball away. Simple as that. We're not throwing the ball down the line because you're giving the ball away. Simple. We, do, we don't want to give the ball away in the centre of the pitch, so we're going to attack in wide areas. If we lose it there, we can box people up, we can press, we can push them to touch lines. We can get it back, create transitions. That's a really good point, yeah. Everything has been driven by numbers. Where you lose the ball, where you want the ball, how you want to progress the ball. That's why we're playing out from the back. Because four or five passes, you can fade in one-on-one with a back four. It's just, what's really happening is, there's a levelling out in physical ability, so teams like West Ham can turn up, they can run with us, no problems. A lot of these teams can run more than us. That wasn't the case back in the day. Coaching, the coaching trends are the same trends. That All the coaches go to the same courses. We all have the same data. We all understand what to do. We can do it slightly differently. Now, and I actually thought that Michael Cox's Five Channels article was one of the best I've ever read. Because what it really does, you look at football now, everyone's doing the same thing. Everyone's filling those five channels. They just do it slightly differently with different players, different quality, different numbers on the back of their shirts. And that's it. And then when they recover, they're, they're all counter-fouling. Right? So, because they're, they're, they're gambling high up with five people. Right? And then when they get broken on, they can't allow that. I mean, you've, only got, you've only got to look at the Man City-Man United game. Two teams. One team, absolutely wonderful quality, moving the ball about. The other team, absolutely crap. Waiting for a mistake. <laughs> Waiting for a mistake, kick it down, <laughs> kick it down the channel, run after it, break shot. Rain night come away with a two 0 win. They barely, they barely played any football at all. You know, apart from five ten minutes. It was honestly kind of like Burnley Spurs. I mean, it just you know, win the ball back, get runners, kick it long, win the first <sighs> ball, second ball shot. Look at if you want to see a game that was a travesty, Spurs Man City. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> Have you seen the combined yeah. XG for their two league games this season? <laughs> right. So. And so if football's now becoming, you know, what's really quite sad is that people are prepared to wait for your mistakes, right? And it's a, it's a game of numbers. It's a game of risk mitigation. It's a game of athleticism. It's a game of not being countered. It's a game of we know we can't manage the whole space, but we can drop into a block and make sure they can't have any space, you know? And it's this is coaching. This is modern tactics. And we'll find a way around it. It will develop again. You know, it will it will go on again. Somebody, somebody else, <laughs> Guardiola, will come up with something new, mm. and we'll follow that trend. I mean, the way Liverpool do it, they protect their they protect their back line with midfielders that don't really move, and their five channels are based with two fullbacks high and the three superstar forwards inside. Five channels, midfielders in behind that basically hand grenade people when they try to run through their team no chance get it back second wave we go again if in doubt they've got two absolutely monster sprinters at the back to cover wide areas and a fantastic goalkeeper they've got a massive insurance plan in their structure right so and everything's built on intensity speed recovery everything's done at high speed so they've managed to build a model that's working for them until key people are out and it all falls down and we've got a few, we've got a few too many Dayan Loverins in our team. They've only got one, right? So when he comes in, they lose, right? So that's the issue. So football is changing, but it's it's becoming the same, and because the coaches are doing the same thing, 
So how you counter that is going to come back to what we're going to, what we're really focused on is the quality of player that you have in those roles. And that's where I felt we've, we've all, we all agree we've dropped off. And that's where the leveling out is now coming. Yeah. And that's really well said. And I, I think you make a really, a lot of really good points in there. And, and look, I want to finish with this and I had meant to get to it earlier and I know we're over the hour mark now, but I, I still want to make sure we get to it. Tim, I am an Aubameyang guy and, and this has been a discussion we've had since he arrived basically, but I, I do think there comes a point where you have to say you're being too clever by half. Like Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is an elite striker at the absolute top of the game and we are not playing him at striker. Okay. Now look, you can tell me he still gets goals where we play him. So it works. And because Saka overlaps, he winds up playing almost like a second striker at times. Fine. The fact is, he's playing on the left so that Enkedia can play at center forward. No one's going to debate who the better player is there. Okay? Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is a better player than Eddie Enkedia. And, and the argument doesn't hold water for me that we should be doing this because if Aubameyang played center forward, then you could put a guy on in the left wing position who's probably a little more suited to that, a Martinelli. I mean, as much as I think Aubameyang's a better player than Martinelli right now, I think Martinelli's probably a better left winger. Maybe even Nelson, right? If you want a little more control or whatever the case may be. Um, but I think the idea that we won't try this, that we don't try this, and you can say, well, look, we're not creating anything from, from central spaces anyway. I think we underestimate how important intelligent runs are. Now, I get that part of the reason for playing him on the left is you can put him between a fullback and a center back and run that that half space, run you know into the channel. I, I, I understand all of it. But Tim, isn't... Isn't there a point at which you say, we should try it? We should try Aubameyang <laughs> up front and a more natural wide player on the wing and get this elite striker in? I mean, at the point at which Lacazette and Enkedia are are not playing at an elite level, and I don't think you could say either of them are doing that right now, this, this decision to stick with this way of playing, I, I can't connect with it personally. So I... I don't think that's wrong per se. I, I've actually written about this today. Um, I think the problem is, is when you go, right, so who's that left-sided player? Because we don't have a good... I think that's where most of this stems from, right? So yes, you can have like the um, the kind of the system, systemic argument. You can say that Arteta wants the centre forward doing like some fairly unglamorous, dirty work with their back to goal and linking play, and that's not really what Aubameyang does. And the inside left channel is is where the goal scorer is. That's why Aubameyang scores a lot of the goals, and that's why when he was suspended, Martinelli scored a lot of the goals because that's where he was playing. And actually, really, the inside left that kind of is the striker in Arteta's system. But I, I you you can say that's too clever by half. I think the re the but I think the main reason it happens is because we don't have that really good left sided forward option. And doing it this way just means we get an elite goal scorer in a Bamiang and we get one of Lacazette or Enketia who are good goal scorers. They're not elite goal scorers, they're good goal scorers. They can do that you know, when they play well, they can do that kind of unglamorous kind of dirty work in the centre and they can chip in with a goal or two, as Lacazette did on Saturday. I, if we had a better option on the left-hand side and maybe Saka will become that option, maybe when Tierney comes back or Kolasinac is back, whoever's back first, may, maybe Saka changes that. Because I think Aubameyang and Martinelli don't really go together. I, I think it's kind of one or the other. But what, what you could do, I think, 
is you could flip the way this kind of front five works and you give Saka the inside left channel, maybe you even give it to Martinelli. I, I, I think the advantage of perhaps putting a Bamiyang in the centre, flipping you know, flipping the, the, the kind of axis so that we're right-sided bias, so we get the right back up instead of the left back. And the advantage then is you can bring Pepe in field one and you can play him in a more advanti- advantageous position. And then what you can say is, well, Pepe is playing in the position that, He's much better at, and he's much closer to Aubameyang. That's our two, you know, one definite elite attacker and one potential elite attacker, nice and close together in positions that they're comfortable with. And we go from there and we use Bellerin or Suarez or whoever as the overlap on the right. And we flip this a bit and maybe then Saka can go and play on the inside left. I think that that's probably worth a look. I'd, I'd be up for that. I just think the problem is at the moment we don't have that left-sided forward who will chip in goals and we don't have a central midfielder that chips in goals either. So if we take one of Lacazette or Nketiah out and we put Aubameyang in and if you agree with my supposition, which I think is up for debate, that Aubameyang and Martinelli don't really mesh, then what you're doing is you're basically putting all of the goal-scoring emphasis onto Aubameyang and you might think, yeah, he can definitely handle that. But at the moment... I think we're kind of 80% reliant on Aubameyang and the other 20% we kind of say, well, Lacazette and Nketiah are good for a goal. And to be fair, they have have both scored um, in the last couple of Premier League games. So there's some kind of of truth to that. So I I don't think it's so much that um, Arteta really doesn't think that Aubameyang can play through the centre. I think it's just he doesn't think he's got a better option on the left. I think it's I, I think that's where the kind of the tension is. Yeah, I, and I all of that makes sense. You start to poke holes in it with things like Thierry Henry could have played the Pires role to make room for Reyes, but that would have been a crazy thing to do. <laughs> you know, um, Robin Van Persie could have played the Theo Walcott role, but it would have been a crazy thing to do. You know why? Because those players could score thirty goals a game from center forward. The fact that Aubameyang is scoring goals from this position isn't necessarily proof that it's working. It's just proof that Aubameyang is very good, and he could be scoring more from center forward. I'm not saying we know that. I'm saying that's that's a hypothesis. The point I will make is you say, well, you know, he wants the center forward to do this other stuff. Well, I look at Nketiah. He had 10 completed passes in the game, and seven of them were to defenders. He played none to Aubameyang and none to Pepe. So it's not mm-hmm. like he's playing that Firmino role, right? Like taking the ball with his back to goal no. and feeding it into the channels to the to onrushing wingers. I mean, that would be one thing. He yeah. played no... He, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, that's because he didn't play well. Oh, I think fair, he fair did enough. that He did that better against Everton, for example. Still, you, You're right, still not at the absolute elite level. I thought he did it quite well against Everton. I, th- I thought he was pretty poor um, against West Ham. Yeah, I think you have to say that there is some clear great thing you're getting from these other guys at striker that makes it worth making this move. And while I understand the theory of what those things might be, I don't think we're getting them. I do think your point is right, that when Saka is available to be picked for left wing because Tierney is back, that would be the time to do it. Then you have Saka left, Pepe right, Aubameyang through the middle, and that that does feel more balanced. And so I am curious to see if he makes that move. And just as a final thought on that, and Clive, I will let you weigh on weigh in on this before we say goodbye. But as a final thought on this, I think, um, you know, it is, it is very clear in football right now that there are a lot of places you can score goals from other than just the striker position. I think the issue for me with Aubameyang playing out wide is not that he can't get goals from there. 
It's a few things. One, I think you're getting a lot more running from him up and down the pitch in places where, you know, you're using, like, players can only run so much and make so many runs and have, so, you know, so much energy throughout a game. And he's tracking back well and he's running, you know, back to front really well. But I'd rather have him being able to hang a little higher up the pitch and put that energy into making those runs in behind. Um, you know, I, I just think also that he does get a little sad. In this game, he looked a little sad. And there are times, I mean, you, sh- you shouldn't pick your team based on players pouting, but I think this was the first game in a while where we saw him do a little pouting and maybe be a little less involved um, and just not really enjoying his football. And, you know, strikers are mercurial like that, and you got to keep them excited and involved. I, I will say for Enkedia, you say he didn't have a great game. The one thing, oh, man, the, I don't know if you remember it, Pepe didn't have a great game. But he did have one unbelievable move. He was so isolated on so many defenders. And one time he had three defenders around him and managed to get by all of them into the box to set himself up for a Galazzo. And as he's about to open his body to shoot, Kedia takes it right off his toe and blasts it out. Um, so it's just an unfortunate moment. But Clive, uh, I think it's time we go, but you want to have a final word on, on Aubameyang's role in this uh, front three? Yeah, I, I really like Tim's analogy there, moving things to the right. And I, I definitely think we, we we have two players that we really want to see an investment in. And one's Pepe and one's Aubameyang. The Pepe one is because we've already done it. We've already invested. There is no way Aubameyang is going to sign a new contract for us running up and down the left wing at the age of 30 to 33. That's just not productive. So for Aubameyang to stay at Arsenal... And I would, if I was him, I would say the same thing. And I would expect him to this stage of his life. He needs to be between the penalty spot and the, the, the penalty area. That's it. I operate here. I am going to be the, the focal point of this attack. And I'm going to score a big majority of your goals. You put it in this area, I'll sort it out for you. And that's what's coming. But maybe just not yet. As we're establishing ourselves, we have to keep this going. I, like you, Elliot, spotted the fact I thought for the first time I saw a little bit of sadness in him at the weekend. And I don't want that because I want him to stay. I like him. I like what he brings. I like the, what, I like the persona he brings to the club. I like the profile he brings to the club. So I want him to stay. I want him to want to stay because we're investing in him. And to do that, we have a couple of young players who are both 18 and we want to invest in on the left-hand side. They can both do that role equally well. I'm not sure if it's quite enough to carry us, but we may be in a situation where that's what we are. And in the six months' time, those players could be another 20% on again. So, but yeah, I, I definitely think it's coming soon. We need to get that guy into the middle part of our pitch. And the only person that takes him out is somebody that's completely different to him. Maybe somebody taller, maybe somebody stronger that offers a different profile, a Giroud type or a Haller type we saw at the weekend, that type of forward that actually offers that aerial threat. Or you get somebody who plays a false nine type role, like Firmino type. Um, there's a young player that everyone's talking about called Jonathan David. Maybe he's almost like a false nine that plays that role, doesn't really play, and all your attacking ability comes from the outside. So it depends on the profile of the team that Arteta wants to build. It's one of us are really sure of yet for next season. I think we can agree on something. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> I don't know that we can agree on anything. But um, if you're going to re-sign him, and I, that is a podcast we should have, just the Do You Resign Aubameyang pod, because I know there's a lot of people that say, absolutely not, you can't do it, and a lot of people that say, you have to do it. I don't think you can re-sign this guy as he ages out of prime if you're going to continue to ask him to play on this sort of left inside wing. I think the only reason you re-sign him is if you see a future for him at center forward in a system that exploits that because 
I don't want him running up and down the wings at 32 years old on, you know, a quarter of a million pounds a week. I just, I, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So we'll have to see how it plays out. Look, the important thing is we won. I, I, I admit to being pretty down. The Olympiacos thing hit me really hard, you guys. Like, I'm still struggling to recover from it because as the results on Sunday pointed out, I do think, unfortunately, a climb back into Champions League places is is beyond us at this point. I mean, we are we are eight points off fourth, um, you know, and we're we're City coming up at midweek, City away, but it's not just that we're eight points up. We have to jump Spurs, we have to jump Sheffield, we have to jump Wolves, we have to jump United, we have to jump Chelsea, or maybe Leicester. You know, one of those. So like. All that has to happen is one of those five teams has to be one point better than us, and we don't get there. It's a lot. It's just a lot. And it's not to say it can't happen. I I hope it does, of course. I hope we win the FA Cup. That's still a reason to be excited. But yeah, I mean, it. gosh, it just feels pretty elusive at this point. Yeah, our game in hand is midweek. It's against City away. So I'm basing this off the the tables it currently stands. But let's see what happens. Yep, Tim. I was just going to say, we're not playing well enough to do it, are we? We're not. Like, I, I can see all, I really can see all of those teams dropping points. Yeah, they're I can. all going to. Yeah, absolutely. But so are we. <laughs> I, I can't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're, we're not, I, we're not quite. For me, the focus is getting back in the Europa League, um, as unexciting as that sounds to a lot of us, either by winning the FA Cup or by the, it, it's absolutely should be achievable in the league without too many problems, I think. Um, winning the FA Cup would be a lovely way to do it. That, that to me, I think is probably what everyone at the club is thinking at the moment. And if we get any more than that, lovely, but probably not going to happen. We all have our breaking point emotionally. And for me, it, it the loss to Olympiacos hit me really, really hard. It just really did. And, and maybe that's bleeding into my analysis of everything right now. But like, we should be in a prolonged Europa League um, campaign right now that has the chance of restoring Champions League and not having that and feeling like we don't have it through the league just makes this this run-in feel a little bleak to me. I'm sorry. I'm trying to delete it. <laughs> Tim's on Twitter. Stilberto, thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. we got a Doomcast coming up for patrons. You could say, Doomcast, hell, you just tried to turn this into one. I apologize. I will cheer up, I assure you, when we beat City on Wednesday. I'm going to be on the hot mic. You're going to hear the exuberance of my voice that day, and then uh, we will have a celebratory pod where I change my mind and say we are still going to win the league. So all that to look forward to. I hope you tolerated me. Thanks for Tim and Clive giving us the good perspective. Paul will be back in a pod in the near future as well. Scott, in any case, uh, we do love you. Thank you for putting up with us, me uh, in particular. And in general, I hope you're doing well. Scary times out there, but we have... uh, We still have the football, at least temporarily, to look forward to. So until then, we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. See you.